from the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 1st. Today, questions about how the Attorney General characterized the Mueller report, proposed changes for asylum seekers, and a ruling on gender and sports. Solemnly swear the testimony you're about to give this committee is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, except you got. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and uh, Ranking Member uh, Feinstein, members of the committee. On Wednesday, Attorney General William Barr appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he defended his rollout of special counsel Robert Mueller's report. That's what we were trying to do, notify the people as to the bottom line conclusion. We were not trying to summarize the 410-page report. In the hearing, there was the usual back and forth of Republicans and Democrats. Thank you for agreeing to serve again as attorney general and help restore uh, the department's reputation. I find, General Barr, that some of the things that you've engaged in uh, really leave me wondering what you believe your role as attorney general is when it comes to something like this. But some senators were really focused on this one letter from Robert Mueller to William Barr. Listen to what you received in a letter on March 27th from Bob Mueller. The summary letter the department sent to Congress and released to public late in the afternoon, March 24th, did not fully capture the context, nature, and substance of the office's work and conclusions. We communicated that concern to the department on the morning of March 25th. Special counsel Bob Mueller had sent a letter to the attorney general in late March complaining that Barr's public description of Mueller's findings was lacking in in some important context and substance about Mueller's work. Devlin Barrett and his colleague Matt Zapatosky broke the news of Mueller's letter on Tuesday night. My name is Devlin Barrett. I cover the FBI and the Justice Department for The Washington Post. Mueller was offering basically lightly redacted versions of his summaries to be made public immediately because Mueller expressed a great deal of concern that the public was becoming confused and had a misunderstanding of what Mueller had found. So this was back before the release of the actual Mueller report, when we just had that kind of four-page document summary that Attorney General Barr had released. And one of the takeaways that people took from that was the idea that there was no criminal obstruction of justice and that that was a clear conclusion from the report. But in fact, it wasn't that clear and that Mueller at the time was concerned that some instances that he thought could be obstruction of justice, that those hadn't been communicated to the public. That's right. Mueller was clearly very concerned about how the obstruction investigation, meaning the investigation into the president's own conduct, had been described publicly. And he thought it was creating public confusion. And he was concerned that that confusion would lead to a lack of public confidence in the work. So Mueller wanted his summaries released to the public. Did Attorney General Barr follow up on that? He disagreed. So after the attorney general gets this letter, I'm told Justice Department officials were shocked to receive that letter. They hadn't seen this dispute brewing ahead of time. So they're surprised. So after that letter comes a phone call between the attorney general and Bob Mueller. 
And in the phone call, apparently, Barr tells Mueller, I don't want to put it out piecemeal. I don't want to do it in bits and pieces. I want to finish the redactions and get it all out at once. Obviously, Mueller disagreed. Mueller wanted to put out the summaries and felt like that was the purpose of the summaries. But the attorney general basically said, well, look, I'm in charge. It's my report now, and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. So can you explain, like, when did these letters occur? Right. So lawyers love to send letters. So the simplest way to do it is to start with Barr's Sunday letter. If you remember when he first announces the results, it's on a Sunday and that's in a four-page letter. And he announces what he calls the top-line conclusions of of Mueller's work. We know that a le- that Mueller sends a letter to Barr, I believe the next day after that, but we don't know the contents of that letter. What we do know is that by Wednesday, Mueller sends another letter to Barr, and that has the complaints about, uh, you know, we really are concerned that this is, you know, creating a misimpression. And that letter produces a call between Mueller and Barr, and Barr does not budge. Barr does not agree to Mueller's request to put out redacted versions of the summaries. Instead, what Barr does that Friday is he issues another letter, which sort of spells out the process he's, he's using, how the redactions are going to go forward. And says, you know, the redacted report will come out in mid-April. At the time, I think everyone perceived that letter as being trying to mollify or calm down Congress and the public. But really, now that we know the backstory, that letter was really about trying to calm down and mollify Mueller. So that is the sequence. And we've now filled in sort of the key events in the middle that explain what happened before and after. So all the news about this exchange that came out on Tuesday night... Now we have this hearing on the Hill. What are senators asking Barr about his exchange with Mueller on this? They're basically challenging Barr because they are arguing that Barr misled both the Congress and the public about this process, misled the Congress and the public, according to the Democrats, about the state of the conversations that he had had with Mueller. And basically accusing the attorney general of trying to protect the president by, you know, some combination of legal hair splitting and just silence at a crucial period when we know the Mueller report is done, but we don't, we can't read it yet. Would you concede that you had an opportunity to make this letter public on April 4th when Representative Christ asked you a very related question? Uh, I don't know what you mean by related question. It seems to me it'd be a very different question. I can't even follow that down the road. That, I mean, boy, that's a masterful hair splitting. It's been an interesting dynamic in terms of the very different questions the Republicans are asking versus the, the questions the Democrats are asking. Because this isn't something that Republicans are focusing on during this hearing. No. In fact, the Republicans' questions are all sort of focused in the area of, did the FBI do anything wrong or improper in the course of investigating the president and even taking some of the questions back to the FBI's handling of the investigation of Hillary Clinton's email server. You know, Republicans throughout these hearings, whenever these Russia hearings happen, that tends to be the split politically, that the Republicans will ask about possible FBI misconduct and the Democrats will ask about possible misconduct by the president or people close to him. What's a little odd about this one is that a lot of the Democrats at this hearing are hitting on the notion that Barr himself may have done something wrong. And what is Barr saying in response to this? He's very defensive, but he's also very legalistic. I would analogize it to this. After a you know, months-long trial, if, if, if I wanted to go out and get out to the public what the verdict was, 
pending preparation of the full transcript, and I'm out there saying, here's the verdict, and the prosecutor comes up and taps me on the shoulder and says, well, the verdict doesn't really fully capture all my work. How about that great you know, cross-examination I did, or how about that third day of trial where I did that? This doesn't capture everything. My answer to that is I'm not trying to capture everything. I'm just trying to state the verdict. No, you just absolutely used the word summarize, though, in your letter. Summarize the principal conclusions. Principal conclusions, which most people would view as a summary. But l- let me move to another topic if I can. For a Barr insists he did nothing wrong and he has been careful in his wording. And interestingly, one of the things he, he has come back to a couple times in the course of the hearing is to say that he doesn't understand all of Mueller's reasoning, that he has read the report and there's a couple areas in which Mueller's legal rationale doesn't quite make sense to him. Not just that he disagrees because we said that before, but he actually said at a couple of points, I don't think I quite understand what Mueller is saying about this topic or that topic. And that's pretty interesting. And I think it speaks to the degree of the dispute here between these two men. Do you agree with the reasons that he offered for not making a decision in volume two of his uh, report and why or why not? I'm not really sure of of his reasoning. I, I really could not recapitulate his analysis. So he's saying that I wasn't trying to hide some some conclusions that Mueller made in his report, but that I just didn't feel like I was in a position to be able to summarize them accurately. Right. And part of what's so odd about this particular fight is that we now know that in Mueller's letter, he takes issue with the summary that Barr has has released. And that sets off Barr in some fashion where he's been arguing for weeks, this is not a summary, don't call it a summary, it's just the principal conclusions. And it's an oddly semantic game to be like, you know, three weeks in basically still arguing about what a summary is or isn't. But now we understand a little more why Barr was so pointed in his insistence on that point, because it's a major bone of contention between him and Mueller and has been for some time. So there is that basic dispute as to what to call this information as it's been as it's been released. Are Democrats buying the defenses that that Attorney General Barr is offering up? And are they considering any punitive action? They're really not buying Barr's explanations for this. Some of them have accused him already of misleading Congress in in a previous hearing. But no one has really pushed forward with any sort of punitive measure toward Barr. But you have to remember... On Thursday, he is scheduled to appear before the House Judiciary Committee, and there's already been a fight over the terms of that hearing. And because of that fight, Barr may not show up. And so if if we get to the point where Barr doesn't show up, and if we get to the point where the Judiciary Committee issues a subpoena for him, then we may be talking about you know a more contentious and uh, open sort of attacking between the two camps. I think that... A lot of details of the Mueller investigation and the Mueller report can be confusing for regular people. And it seems like this point, things have got even more complicated where we're talking about the language of various summaries and letters and press conferences and and kind of bickering over the differences in that language. Why is this ultimately important? It's important because you can think of all these arguments about as being arguments about process. And why does process matter? Well, process matters a lot in this context because the process helps determine the actual outcome. You can view the Barr and Mueller dispute as essentially a very dry legal difference of opinion about how the federal law works in relation to a sitting president. But the consequences of where you come down on that question 
matter tremendously for politics and power in the American government. Because if you believe that, you can't form an opinion as to whether or not the president obstructed justice. That would seem to suggest that you're probably not headed down a road toward impeachment. But if you believe you can form an opinion about that and can pursue that, then maybe you can proceed down the road to impeachment. Impeachment is ultimately a political process. It's not actually a legal process. So, you know, how these lawyers fight about the mechanics, about the process, and things like letters back and forth and and context matters tremendously for the final outcome. And the final outcome could have a huge impact on the government. Devlin Barrett reports on the Justice Department for The Post. Asylum is a ridiculous situation. People come in, they read a line from a lawyer that a lawyer hands them out online. President Trump has been very clear about his views on asylum seekers. It's a big con job, that's what it is. And now, Trump has a new plan to cut down on people crossing the border to seek asylum. On Monday night, uh, the Trump administration released a memo that intended to make the asylum system move more quickly and stem the flow of migrants crossing the border. I'm Maria Sacchetti. I cover immigration for The Washington Post. The most controversial policy that the administration is proposing involves having asylum seekers pay a fee to apply for humanitarian refuge. The memo also called for a six-month deadline for the courts to adjudicate asylum cases and tightening the rules on who gets a work permit while they wait for asylum. Some people view it as another example of the Trump administration taking a shot at asylum seekers. He's been very frustrated that the border crossers are growing every month. They just hit a 12-year high in March. And he's tried all different ways to block people from applying for asylum. And he has essentially failed in almost all of them, or they've been held up in the courts. So one view of this that I think is more complex is that the Trump administration is finally acknowledging that they actually have to give people access to asylum. You have to adjudicate the cases. You have to, you know, hear them out and and get these done. And so what they're trying to do, and this makes sense to people, including progressives, is give them a fair hearing and decide the cases quickly. That's what everybody wants. But the Trump administration is also putting some hurdles in their path. So they're, for the first time that anyone can remember, um, they're char- they want to charge a fee to apply for asylum. That's something that just uh, is anathema to many in this country. Think that people fleeing for their lives, which is what asylum is supposed to be, should not have to pay for that. Most countries don't charge a fee. And also people are concerned that this six-month deadline, even though that's what the law calls for, It's just not possible in this environment. You have an immigration court system that has 860,000 cases and just over 400 judges. I mean, just doing the math, it's just they're completely overwhelmed. When it comes to the idea of charging fees from asylum seekers, do we have a sense of how much those fees would cost? So... That's a very good question. We, we don't know how much it would cost because the government is going to have to do an analysis and figure that out. How much does it cost to actually adjudicate an asylum case? I mean, the hearings that I've sat in on, they can last for three hours. Judges listen. They're recorded. 
evidence is presented. It could be anything from the medical reports documenting rape, torture, psychological reports. And then the government's attorney also cross-examines. So these, you know, they typically take a long time. And then the judge has to dictate or write a decision. You know, it's hard to know how to put a price on something that, you know, unique. But that's one thing they'll have to do. And and I think some people would point out that there are other fees that we assess from other people who are trying to immigrate to the U.S. If you're applying for a visa, then you do have to pay the government money to assess your application. But why are asylum seekers different? Other immigrants essentially pay the fee so that asylum seekers can get their cases adjudicated. Like there's a surcharge on the green card, for example. What's different about asylum is those folks generally are believed to be fleeing for their lives. They're fleeing persecution or torture or even death threats based on specific things in the law that qualify them for asylum, like their political opinion or their race, ethnicity, their religion. And the idea is that many of them flee just with a small bag or the clothes on their backs. You know, they may not even have their passports. And some have have actually just run across the border and because they were running away from someone. So they typically arrive with very few resources, very little money. And that's where that stands. The idea, the kind of the philosophy behind asylum is that you should be able to cross a border, step foot on U.S. soil or any, any other country and ask, can I stay here? I'm in danger in my homeland and I'm coming here to be safe. And the idea is for some people is that you really just can't put a price on that. But our federal law does allow us to charge a fee. And so we'll have to see how that unfolds. So another part of these proposed changes is potentially putting a ban on work permits for people who are in the process of seeking asylum who have crossed the border illegally. What would that mean for asylum seekers? Imagine you're an asylum seeker. You are fleeing danger in a country and you cross the border and seek safe harbor. So you have to find a lawyer, and they have to do it at their own expense. They're not given a lawyer by the government, like in the criminal system, unless they can find a nonprofit willing to help them. And they have to pay for medical treatment or psychological treatment if they need that. And they have to pay rent. And, and you know, a lot of this, the services that are available to asylum seekers and others are in cities, which are increasingly expensive. So there are so many of these issues. But speaking of the, the, the work permit, one, one thing... The work permit has been a problem with the asylum system for a long time, and it actually led to the reforms that we see today. So back in the 1990s, you had a huge backlog of asylum seekers. And one of the incentives to apply for asylum back then was getting a work permit instantly. So they changed that in the government. They said, okay, you can't get a work permit until six months later. And that's what we have right now. And that's why in the law it says you have to adjudicate their cases within six months, and and that's when they get the work permit. So the problem is that we've let the system get so backlogged that you're not completing cases in the six months the law requires. And that's why so many people are getting work permits, because, you know, they should be getting work permits after six months in the law because the cases should be done within six months. So there's multiple areas that, you know, people are saying, you know, if you just would, you know, increase resources to the courts, increase the number of judges or asylum officers, then you'd be able to tackle these cases more effectively. So if the law says that currently courts are supposed to get through asylum cases within 180 days, but they're not doing that now, is this new proposed regulation from the Trump administration going to change anything? And if so, how? 
So my understanding is that the Trump administration will have to prioritize the people crossing the border. So the people who cross the border today, for example, will be prioritized for hearings. And, and they will try to decide them within six months and either deport them or allow them to stay. And by having the system working more efficiently, the idea is that it will send a signal to smugglers and others in Central America that it's just not worth coming if you don't have a real asylum claim. So, so they would put more focus on trying to deal with people who are coming in through the border now versus people who have been waiting for months and months or years and years for asylum hearings. Right. Just because they're, they want it to be a disincentive for more people to start crossing the border. Right. But that's also a problem for the people who are on the dock. Is there a possibility that, that these changes, at least when it comes to trying to lower the amount of time that people have to wait for asylum hearings— could that be good? Because I, I can imagine for a lot of these people who have been waiting a really long time that they would also want to see a more efficient, more expedient process for getting their cases heard. From what I'm hearing, people are saying, yeah, absolutely, this could be good. I mean, if you can quickly address the issue and quickly adjudicate the claims, but I'm also hearing that it could be bad in the way that if you rush an asylum hearing, then the questions are, will the immigrant have a lawyer? Will they have time to gather evidence? You know, if they fled with few documents, will they be able to gather those documents or the proof? Do they have it and lose it on the journey? We would meet many people on the border who carried with them newspaper clippings, police reports, affidavits, because they knew they needed that evidence to prove their asylum claim, medical reports. But if they lost them, will they have time to go and gather them? And where will they be? Will they be in jail? Will they be in a family detention camp? That will limit their flexibility to be able to gather that information. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of questions there. But but definitely, I mean, there are people who who see this as a mixed bag. You know, it's not all bad. It's the Trump administration acknowledging that they have to do the work, as someone put it to me at the Migration Policy Institute. They were saying, you know, we've been trying to get them to understand that they have to do the work. They have to you know, conduct the hearings. They have to do it in an expedient way. But it also has to be a fair hearing so that people have faith in the system. And uh, and that's, that's the balance right now. Maria Sacchetti covers immigration for The Post. On Wednesday, the White House asked Congress for an additional $4.5 billion in emergency spending to pay for humanitarian assistance and day-to-day operations on the border spending that they argue is necessary because of the unfolding humanitarian and security crisis. And now, one more thing. Castor Semenya is a 28-year-old South African middle-distance runner, and she's, for the past decade, been one of the most dominant runners that the world has seen. And on Wednesday, Castor Semenya lost a landmark case against the governing body of track and field, the International Association of Athletics Federations, also known as the IAAF. That group will require women with high testosterone levels to take suppressants if they want to compete in certain races. I mean, Semenya has become the face of this issue, and part of it's because the IAAF has uh, targeted the rule at three specific distances, and they just so happen to be the distances that Semenya has, has competed in and excelled at for many years. My name is Rick Mace, and I'm a sports reporter for The Post. 
For the past several years, Semenya is basically undefeated when she gets on the track in the 800-meter race. Um, she's posted some of the best times. She currently holds the fourth fastest time ever. She's someone that, you know, when she lines up at the starting line, all eyes are on her because many think she could break the world record at any given time. Many of Semenya's competitors feel like she has an unfair advantage because her body produces elevated levels of testosterone. So it's something that the IAAF has tried to issue limits on. It's something that Semenya then challenged. And finally, Wednesday, we got a ruling from the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which basically upheld the IAAF's rules. What the ruling means is that if Semenya wants to continue competing at the highest level, she has to start taking medication that will suppress the hormones and limit the amount of testosterone that her body produces. So Semenya is widely believed to have an intersex condition, which allows her body to produce these high levels of testosterone, but she has very rarely addressed the issue. Obviously, it's, it's a private matter. It's a medical and health matter for her. Here you mention uh, IAAF, so... Those are the things, uh, issues that uh, I don't focus on. It's, uh, it's none of my business. It's their business. So my business is to train hard and uh, see what I can come up with in a competition. Uh, I focus more on uh, being healthy and doing better for myself. Uh, for that, come on. Now, this ruling came down Wednesday morning. She did issue a statement there in which she said that she knew the regulations have always targeted her specifically. She said, and I'm quoting, For a decade, the IAAF has tried to slow me down, but this has actually made me stronger. The decision of the court will not hold me back. There's a lot of people that line up uh, and race against Semenya, and they think they've been at a disadvantage for several years now. You know, and, and I think that's what it all comes down to, is who, who has the unfair advantage here. In sports... Um, you know, we always have people that have some kind of genetic advantage. Michael Phelps has an incredible wingspan. Basketball players are taller than most people. Um, hand-eye coordination for a baseball player or fast twitch muscles for a football player. You know, a lot of people say that that's just part one of the defining characteristics of, of high-level athletes. Her gift, her genetic gift, just so happens to be that her body uh, makes her faster than, than her competitors. Rick Mace covers sports for The Post. Lawyers for Semenya say that they may challenge the ruling. But if Semenya wants to compete in the world championships this fall, the IAAF says that she has one week to submit a sample with acceptable testosterone levels. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's episode by going to postreports.com and join in on the conversation online with the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>